I'm in uh, I'm at Hoyt's no well yeah I'm going to Hoyt's in Broadmeadow Shopping Centre uh, I guess uh, seeing this fucking movie Uh, it is Tuesday, the 24th of December, mm, Christmas Eve. I have seen uh, that, 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 that clip of me just then was me on my way to see uh, Star Wars Episode Nine, um, And so I've seen it. What do I think? Well, uh, not as bad as eight. If anyone's ever played that video game from like 2001 or something, uh, Jedi Knight Academy, it is pretty much the movie version of that, actually, which means it was fairly entertaining, but not of a lot of substance. Well, I guess there is a lot of substance if it just depends what substance you're going for. See, I'm just going to talk about... Jedi Knight Academy for a while. It's, uh, actually, let me bring up the Wikipedia for it. Because I could do my usual, um, slowly describe things, or I could just awkwardly read out a Wikipedia page. Star Wars Jedi Knight Acad- Jedi Academy is a 2003, oh, see, I'm already wrong, first and third person shooter action video game set in the Star Wars universe and is the last entry in the Star Wars Jedi Knight game series. What? I didn't know that. Now I just want to look all this stuff up. Star Wars Jedi Knight is a first-person shooter and third-person shooter video game series set in the fictional Star Wars expanded universe. The series focuses primarily on Kyle Katarn, a former Imperial officer who who becomes a Jedi and and an instructor at the Jedi Academy. Oh man. Kyle dude was in a bunch of games. I thought he was in like two. Okay guys, I've just read the Wikipedia page. I've got all the information now. So Jedi Knight, Star Wars Jedi Knight Academy. No, Star Wars Jedi Knight Jedi Academy is the fifth in a series. Starting with Star Wars Jedi Knight with the main character Carl K- Kyle Katarn. Then Star Wars Dark Forces. Then Star Wars Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2. Then Star Wars Jedi Knight Mysteries of the Sith. Then Star Wars Jedi Knight 2 Jedi Outcast. And finally, Star Wars Jedi Knight Jedi Knight Academy. Jedi Academy. Ugh. Okay, so this this game... God, I just spent like half an hour researching it just so I could talk. It, it came out in 2003. It's a first-person shooter, but also a third-person action video game. Set in the Star Wars universe, and it is the lit. Anyway, so this game is not big on. It, it's it's not a great story. So much of it is really just fan service. It is just like fa- uh, living out your fantasy. So instead of there was a decision made in the game. So this car, fuck, this Kyle Katarn character, he's a friend of Luke Skywalker, and it's set after the original trilogy. So after the defeat of. Darth Vader and the Empire. Luke Skywalker is, he's, he's made, he, he's finding force sensitive people and turning them into Jedi, training them to be Jedi uh, on this planet where they, they train. And Kyle is one 
who joined him in a previous stories. And this is expanded universe before Disney owned it, uh, owned, owned the Star Wars universe and changed all the expanded universe. Uh, so, and then, and then Kyle's got his own storyline. He's in most of those games that I just mentioned. And he, he's like a mercenary and he becomes a stormtrooper and he leaves the Empire and he like finds, meets Luke, becomes a Jedi, then goes to the dark side, gives up being a Jedi, and then comes back to the light side and joins, the, joins Luke again and then becomes a Jedi Knight and a Jedi Master and then uh, starts becoming a trainer to other young Jedi Padawans. So, in this game, Jedi Academy, you're not playing as him or any other important character. You're playing as your own customized character. You get to choose if they're a man or woman and you get to choose what, what like if they're a human or if they're one of the humanoid species of alien and you get to choose what your lightsaber hilt looks like what your lightsaber blade looks like because your character made their own lightsaber on their own without any training and that's what earned them an invitation to the jedi academy and you get to pick the outfit and you and you get flown there and you meet one of the main characters who's like going with you he's like another guy who's also about to learn to become a jedi padawan so you're at like this temple, this old Jedi temple, you meet Luke, and you go through a training scenario, an obstacle course sort of thing, with those little floating balls that shoot lasers and you go to deflect them and do backflips and, and learn to jump and run and shit, and, learn, and, and do tricks with your lightsaber. It was really fun. Uh, I really loved this game because you could enjoy having a first-person shooter, like you just use blasters, and at any point, you press the B button if you're playing Xbox, which was the same as Melee and Halo, which made it easy. And you'd go and you pull out your lightsaber, and then it's a third-person perspective, and then you could use the lightsaber. And the lightsaber combat was so good, and there were so many tricks, and there were like you could you could have be someone who had a single lightsaber, dual lightsabers, or a double-edged lightsaber. Um, and you had force powers. You could like force push, force pull. Uh, I think health drain and there's like you could have light side and dark side powers and like you unlock them um lightning force lightning force choke so much fun and uh the world exploring was really good too or at least i just enjoyed the maps so this training so this beginning of the game this training situation is exactly what ray does at the beginning of episode nine in the movie <laughs> right after we get abruptly introduced to Kylo Ren. I'm gonna, this is gonna like, I'm gonna just talk the whole movie. Spoilers here, by the way. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, so yeah, Kylo Ren does his thing. He goes to this planet, kills some dudes to find this old Sith compass. Then he uses the compass to track down Emperor Palpatine. Turns out, oh, Snoke was Emperor Palpatine all along. And the, the the connection between Joe and I mean Kylo and Ray was Palpatine all along. Um, and he's like, now nah, well, now I shall show you the power of the dark side and give you full capacity. He gives them a million star destroyer ships or something like that, uh, each with a massive cannon that can destroy a planet, which they didn't have before. After a bit, we cut to Ray and she's floating in this jungle forest planet with rocks floating around her and like heaps of rocks more than Luke ever made float around him 
to show that she's pretty much at uh, her full capacity now, or just about. She was already overpowered, now she's like maxed out completely. And she's like, oh, run the obstacle course. And she's running this obstacle course, and I'm like, holy shit, it's Jedi Academy, the game, the movie. Um, and there's Princess Leia there tra teaching her how to be a Jedi, because as it's revealed, Princess Leia was trained by Luke, um, and she even made her own lightsaber. So she actually knows a fair bit about the Force, but then didn't end up being a Jedi. It it was decided it was not her path or some shit. But uh, yeah, she's she's um she's digital, but very well done digital. Like the previous digital representations of you know deceased people weren't quite believable, but this one actually was. Um, rest in peace, Carrie Fisher. Very sad that we lost her. So, yeah, it's a weird. The movie has a pretty simple plot actually of just like finding another compass or key to get something and following old encrypted instructions and then like it's very basic storytelling of to get to the end point you need this and in order to get this you need to get this as well and in order to get this you need to get that and you need to fix this by going to that person and then we see Ray blow up a ship with lightning force lightning and she discovers she's got force lightning and like holy shit and it looked really cool and again it looks like Je Jedi Knight Academy where you just where you're a good guy shooting lightning at your hands just more bloody fan service which I guess they had to do there was heaps of just like cool Star Wars things thrown in uh, which would have made a dumb movie but given that they Things were so badly derailed by episode 8. All, all these big setups were just ruined, trolled by that director. Like, Snoke would have likely been the final boss, but he decided to have Snoke die in the second movie. And then, God, it's just so dumb. It was just such a dumb movie. I'm not in a state of mind to go over every detail. I don't have any notes. Okay, uh, there's another part in episode 9 where Ray flies a... X-Wing. Um, there's another part where she's dual-wielding blue lightsabers. There's... Um, oh, we find a new force power. Healing. A force-sensitive person using their force powers to put their life energy into another being's to heal them. And it becomes an important plot point later. When I was talking about the basic story plot points of having to go to this to get this and then get this key and then you unlock this key with that key that's not bad storytelling in fact this the movie has a lot of good storytelling elements um kylo ren there's a big duel about halfway through the movie between him and ray and ray wins because with the help of princess leia uh, using the force to talk to kylo and distract him um she stabs him through the gut ray stabs Kylo ran through the gut and he starts to slowly die and she uses her force powers to heal him and he just sits there defeated and she goes away and she actually leaves his lightsaber behind the red one and then bloody Kylo Ren is just like not knowing what to do when he sees his father talk to him <laughs> not a force ghost just just as subconscious and telling him he know what to do when he throws his lightsaber into the into the ocean because there's an ocean there there's lots of water that's when we see Kylo Ren die and Ben Ben Skywalker Ben Skywalker no Ben Solo yeah Ben Solo I guess 
because he's Han Solo's son, um, come back from, resurrect from the ashes like Phoenix. It's a Phoenix-like process, as Jordan Peterson would put it. And then, so he turns to the light side after being stabbed in the gut. It's kind of like in, uh, it's a symbolic death. He didn't quite die, but part of him died. That was Kylo Ren. And then Ben remained, rising from the ashes, symbolically speaking. And then he comes and saves Rey at the end from Emperor Palpatine and shit. And then, and Rey's so, so worn out at the very end from the fight with Palpatine, that uh, she starts dying, and then he uses the same trick on her, using force power to heal her, and then he just dies. And they have a little kiss. And then he dies, and she's sad, and he disappears. And it's like, oh, that's actually really good. Some people protest against the kissy part, um, because it wasn't necessary. They didn't actually have, like, a romance. Except for that, oh, they kind of had a romance in the second movie, where they had, like, they kept messaging each other through the force by accident. And it was very much like teenagers talking over chat MSN and stuff. Like, you up? What are you doing? Hi. Oh, I've got no shirt on. <laughs> um... This is very important that he dies, because while it, it's like a very well, that's actually a very good story arc structure for the character's redemption. He did so many bad things, and then he killed the, the, well, the evil part of him was killed, and then the good part of him remained, this refined good part of him remained, and he was able to end, help end evil, and then save the life of the good. And the final redemption was dying in the process. Um, quite Jesus-like in the end. So this bad guy turned into a Jesus figure, sort of. Or at least he followed followed the path of rebirth, self-redemption, uh, redemptive acts, and um, self, self-sacrifice, the savior of someone else. Um, to me, that's good storytelling. It, it, it appeals to all of us doesn't mean the movie wasn't fucking ridiculous because it was so ridiculous i something i liked though was uh there were these horses but there were space horses but you could tell there were horses with like costumes on that was entertaining i liked that <laughs> so there's a new droid introduced in the movie called do they find him on this old ship that turns out to be an important one um He's a little, he's even smaller than BB-8. This little guy with a single wheel and a little cone head bit, um, colored green and white, uh, and was voiced by J.J. Abrams himself. And um, so he's there deactivated, BB-8 reactivates him. He's like, hello. And uh, Ray tries, it's like, oh, says hello to him. Um, Tries to touch him, he's like, no, thank you. And she's like, oh, you've been, mis- someone's mistreated you. And I'm seeing this and I go, I've never related to a Star Wars character more than, than that one just now. And later there's like an awkward bit where I think it's about uh, people are, ta- are seeing, the main characters are seeing Princess Leia dead for the first time. And um, this D.O. one goes, sad. <laughs> just like, just this inability to be socially appropriate. I'm like, oh my God. This little droid is now the representative of people with Asperger's, particularly ones that are mistreated. That's It's me. That character is me. There was also a return of Lando Calrissian for a small role. Uh, more fan service, really, because it, it was just... He literally just 
played the part he played in, in episode six, where he's just like, yeah, I'm here on the battlefield too, and I'm gonna uh, pilot the Millennium Falcon and save the day, or contribute. Okay, so another fucking awesome addition is this um, little character. I'm just, I've just got a vulture <laughs> article up. Um, the true star of Star Wars, the rise of Skywalker, is Babu Frick. Babu Frick is his name. <laughs> Frick, what a great name. Um, so, okay, so I was talking about the, the keys, like you got to get the key to get the next key to get the next key to unlock the door at the end. So they find some, this dagger with some ancient Sith runes on it, some symbols. C-3PO reads it, he says, I understand it and I know what it means, but I cannot translate it to anyone uh, because it's against my programming and then they had to take him to a specialist who could tinker with his brain uh, tinker with his software so they could get the translation and get the location written on the bloody dagger and they get this this little character babu frick to do it and he's hilarious he's oh my god everyone loves him he's so fucking great um i'm just seeing what the article says here he's a little puppet character too which is great what makes Babu Frick so delightful, however, is precisely that he's pretty much unnecessary to the plot. So much of The Rise of Skywalker is devoted to exposition, to dumb characters announcing that they suddenly have to go from one planet to the next, shouting about various prism-shaped MacGuffins, or unloading brief bits of information about their backstories before charging into the battle. MacGuffin, I, yeah, I haven't used that word in a while. It's a good word. Babu, by contrast, mostly just reminds you that the Star Wars galaxy is full of so many weird creatures we haven't met yet, and there's some delight in the pleasure of their existence. He's akin to Baby Yoda, who was arguably cuter, but without the weight laid upon by a Baby Yoda of Star Wars lore and mystery. We know that Baby Yoda will have to be important in the... Okay, I don't need to go this far. Babu Frick is important mostly just because he can fix things and seems fun. So... At some point, Ray goes and sees Luke's Force ghost um, on the planet, on that big sea planet that Luke was living on. She starts a big fire with the ship she was on. Yeah, this is immediately after she defeats Kylo. And she just flies there because she doesn't know what to do, I guess. Sets the ship she used on fire, which was Kylo's ship, and throws the lightsaber, Luke, which was Anakin's old lightsaber into it and then Luke's force ghost catches it he says no that's no way to treat my old, my father's lightsaber or something like that so he does the reverse of what he does in the previous movie which was this stupid thing of just throw, throwing it off a cliff but then and I'm like okay is this the jump the shark moment for the movie where it just gets a bit too dumb no that happens soon after um, Ray needs a sh Ray decides eventually that she needs to get off that planet and go save the universe and Luke encourages her and he and she's like I need a ship and he um, I think she was just planning to just live there as a hermit again and he pull force uses the force to pull out his x-wing from the water and bring it to her so that she can use it and he does a perfect impression of Yoda pulling out the X-Wing from the swamp in episode five. And it is the campiest, hammiest thing I think I've ever seen in these films. And that's really saying something. Like, he's not Luke. He's Mark Hamill doing an impression of Yoda. It's, oh my God, it's amazing. And I said out loud as I'm watching this in the theater, this is too dumb. 
Anyway, enough about Star Wars. Uh, I'd like to take a second to remind you that if you're actually listening to this, please go ahead and turn the playback speed up to a higher setting so that one, you get through this quicker, and two, um, I sound smarter because I'm talking really quick. <laughs> I should mention, I'm recording this on uh, Christmas Eve. I'm alone in the house because my one housemate is uh, off doing Christmas stuff from somewhere else. And we don't have any decorations. This has been a common theme in these two, two person places I've been li living in. Excuse me. Not really having any decorations, no Christmas trees. We do have this Christmas giraffe with a little Santa hat that's been like out in the lounge room all year. And now around November, December time, December time it was put away somewhere. <laughs> so it's like an inverted Christmas decoration. <laughs> now, if this sounds sad, well, it is, but I'll be okay. Tomorrow I am seeing friends. In fact, tomorrow I'm overbooked. I've got two different uh, Christmas lunches to go to. I think I'm going to have to just stop by one, drop off some food for them, maybe eat something quickly and then go. Then spend most of the rest of the day with the next one and, if, and see who's going out that night, I guess, and then go with them out on the night time. Also, maybe make some phone calls too. So I guess uh, all things, now the taking into consideration that I'm recording this on, oh no, I'm recording this on Christmas Eve and I'll likely upload it tonight or tomorrow. This is my first Christmas episode. So Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Uh, everybody. The uh, food I mentioned is just a nice little thing. Some nice mashed uh, sweet potato. So you get... I, I'm, now, I'm now gonna tell you how I make that. Uh, I'm halfway through this podcast and I need substance. So you get your sweet potato, you peel your sweet potato, you chop it up into little little bits, put them into a big mixing bowl, get a small handful of green peas, is something I like to add, uh, uh, a uh, about a tablespoon of pumpkin seeds, uh, roasted pumpkin seeds. Um, then you add some pepper and salt, and then you put a lid on the big mixing bowl that you've got them in, and you put it in the microwave for like 10 minutes, and you let it cool down a bit, and uh, let it cook in its own heat, and, then, and check to make sure it's all soft and cooked. And if it's not quite, if the, some of it's still not quite cooked, well, we put it in for a bit longer. And when it's all nice and soft and ready, you, you get you get your whiz stick, your, your blending stick, and you blend it all up. Or a food processor. I prefer the blending stick because it's easy to clean everything. Then uh, I, you, you, you garnish it with a couple of pumpkin seeds on top. Oh, and uh, I like to add a drizzle of, during, during the mixing, uh, the, 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 the blending part, I like to put in some olive oil and a bit of butter. Butter gives some really good flavor. And then you sprinkle on some... Uh, some thyme, some some thyme leaves. You stir it all up. You got some really nice, really nice sweet potato mash. Try not to put too many peas in or too many green things, otherwise it goes green and loses its nice orange color. Sometimes I put in a bit of spinach. It'll make it more healthy, but it'll give it a weird green color. Oh, here's a topic. Ego death or the ego, my interpretation. So the ego is something that's very important to the psyche. It's to do with how we perceive ourselves in the world and probably extends to the things we want and the thing and how we see other people and other stuff. In fact, you know what, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just 
quickly bloody look up the Wikipedia page. Okay, here we go. Ego psychology the, on Wikipedia. Ego psychology is a school of psychoanalysis rooted in Sigmund Freud's structural id ego superego model of the mind. So he pretty much invented the, the term. And an, an individual interacts with the external world as well as responds to internal forces. Many psychoanalysts use a rhetorical construct called the ego to explain how that is done through various ego functions. Adherents of ego psychology focus on the ego's normal and pathological developments, its management of libidi, lib, lib, libidinal and aggressive impulses and its adaptation to reality. Oh, libido, libidi, lib, libidinal, libidin, libidinal. History. Early concepts of the ego. Sigmund Freud initially considered the ego to be a sensor organ for perception of both external and internal stimuli. That's very interesting because that's the revelation I've had is that this ego thing is like a functions as an organ, but it's all contained in the mind. Uh, he thought the ego as synonymous with consciousness and contrasted it with the repressed unconscious. In 1910, Freud emphasized the attention to detail when referencing psychoanalytical matters. While predicting this theory become essential in regards to everyday tasks with the Swiss psychoanalyst Oscar Pfister. By 1911, he referenced ego instincts for the first time in formulations on the two principles of mental functioning and contrasted them with sexual instincts. Ego instincts responded to the reality principle while sexual instincts obeyed the pleasure principle. He also introduced attention and memory as ego functions. Freud's ego psychology. Freud later argued that not all conscious phenomena can be attributed to the id and the ego as has conscious aspects as well. The posed, this posed a significant problem for the topo, topographic theory, which he resolved in the ego and the id. Now let's just look at what the id is. The id, ego, and superego are the three instincts in three instinct interacting agents in the psychic apparatus defined in Sigmund Freud's structural model of the psyche. The three agents are rhetorical constructs that describe the activities and interactions of the mental life of a person. In the ego psychology model of the psyche, the id is set of is the set of the uncoordinated instinctual desires. The superego plays the critical and moralizing role. And the ego is the organized realistic agent that the, that mediates between the instinctual desires of the id and the critical superego. Freud explains that the functional importance of the ego is manifested in the fact that normally control over the approaches to a motility motility devolves upon it. I don't even know what his accent's supposed to sound like. This, in its relation to the id, the ego, is like a man on horseback who has to hold in check the superior strength of the horse with this difference that the rider tries to do so with his own strength while the ego uses borrowed forces the analogy may be carried a little further often a rider if he is not to be parted from his horse is obliged to guide the horse where it wants to go so in the same way the ego is in the habit of transforming the id's will into action as if it were its own um Freud later argued that not all un uh, unconscious phenomena can be attributed to the id and the ego has the unconscious aspects as well. This posted a significant problem with topographic theory, which he resolved in the ego and the id. In what came to be 
called the structural theory, the ego was now a formal component of a three-way system that also included the id and superego. The ego was still organized around conscious perceptual capacities, yet it now had unconscious features responsible for repression and other defensive operations. Freud's ego at this stage was relatively passive and weak. He described it as the helpless rider on the id's horse, more or less obliged to go where the id wishes to go. Okay, so I was just thinking as I read this that the use of the word ego has changed a bit. So modern conflict theory, what's this? Oh, okay, this is under contemporary. Charles Brenner in 1982 attempted to revive ego psychology with a concise and incisive articulation of the fundamental focus of psychoanalysis, intrapsychic conflict, and the resulting compromise formations. Over time, Brenner in 2002 tried to develop a more clinically based theory, what came to be called modern conflict theory. He distanced himself from the formal components of the structural theory and its metapsychological and its metapsychological assumptions, and focused entirely on compromise functions. Just going by what I generally hear people talk about the ego in the modern time is that it is how we perceive the world and ourselves in the world. Um, so what I was pondering recently was to imagine, so we need the ego, but it can be very troubling for us. We talk about having people having too much of an ego, too big an ego or a bad ego or some shit. So I compare it to organs and cells. Uh, so if we imagine, so it's a, it's a, it's a imaginary organ in the mind, the ego and it has cells and it has a purpose. Each of these cells and sections of it as functions of interpreting the world in a certain way. Like each cell is a belief um, linked to, to uh, ath, things that make you act upon the beliefs. And when it's healthy, things that are proven not to be accurate to reality need to die off. Um, and you could call, and if it's something particularly profound, you can compare, say that this cell in the ego organ that died is in itself an ego death, ego death, because you never, there's like, if you have an ego death, like you're not, it's not like you're, you're not going to have an ego again. It just means your perception of the world is greatly changed so much that you feel and act differently after after experiencing it. Um, so you learn something like that that breakfast cereal is actually really bad for you, which it is, especially when paired with milk. After being told by catalogs and advertisers your whole life as a kid and being brought up on it, this thing you love is not the most important meal of the day. It's actually fucking bad for you. It's poisonous, actually. Mildly poisonous, but poisonous. You then have to either, you can reject that or you can accept it. And if you can't, and if say, say you had found it hard to believe, so you did the research, you did a bunch of research and you just brokenheartedly came to the re realization that, oh, it actually is quite bad for you. And then you cut it out of your life. That is in itself a bit of an ego death. You could say that's a, one of those cells in the proverbial ego organ has died off and you're no longer doing the thing. Or what could happen is you latch on to breakfast cereal um, because you love it so much. And rather than say, then just accepting that it's bad for you and coming to terms with liking something that's bad for you, you find reasons or things 
evidence, you look for evidence to prove that it's not bad for you or it's not as bad for you as the science says and you obsess over it. Um, you have to prove to the world that breakfast cereal is good for you because it, you're so attached to the happy childhood you had with the breakfast cereal. That is an old ego cell going by my terminology, refusing to die and becoming, I guess you could say cancerous um, because it, it then negatively affects the other cells around it. It affects your psyche if, if your psyche was a collection of organs. And then in order to purge that out, you have to have an even bigger, more, more profound thing happen than just stumbling upon some research. So something big has to happen in order to bring on that ego death and kill off that tumorous ego cell that doesn't want to die. It's a lot like what's supposed to be the benefits of fasting. People who are really into fasting talk about how when your body has no food in it for a couple of days, a day or two, your body then goes into a mode of like cleaning itself up a bit. Like you get rid of excess, a lot of cells in the stomach lining, the dead cells, a lot of old cells instead of continuously being used, just get killed off and turned into new food for the body. Um, and this is, and then they, and, and in this process, they get replaced with fresh cells. So you're running on fresher cells after a day or two of fasting. Actually, I think even after just 12 hours of fasting, I think it's my knowledge of this and being into intermittent fasting kind of helped me come up with this analogy of the ego organ and the need to every so often let certain cells die off before they become problematic ones. It's uh, to go back to Star Wars, it's much like when uh, Rey in the newest Star Wars stabs Kylo Ren in the gut and then revives him with force powers. The ego, or the part of the ego that contained Kylo Ren has effectively died from this profound experience. And what's left is just a healthier version of the man, which is Ben Solo, without Kylo Ren. He has given up Kylo Ren. He has let that unhealthy or problematic part of him die. So I really enjoyed that part of the movie being and, and being able to interpret that. And it's something that goes on in uh, as I mentioned before, in mythology and shit, when we have to sacrifice a part of ourselves in order to move forward. Sometimes we have to let go of big ideas or hopes or things we really want, desires. That's a hard thing. Something when you realize that something you thought you wanted for ages isn't as real as you thought it was and you have to let go of this ambition to get it. I've had a lot of ego deaths this past year and a half, or a couple of years actually, to the point where it's become one of my catchphrases. There's a guy I know through improv who loves saying ego death, but he's not saying it so much anymore. I think it's become my thing now. I had this big thing of wanting to be an actor and I had an image. I had this really prestigious image. I had plans that, well, when I was in my early 20s, actually from about the age of 19, that I, I wanted to be a future James Bond. In my 20s, early 20s, I bought the big, huge fucking box set of Blu-rays and just watched them all. Started buying clothes that were like similar to, like the, like the sort of things he wears casually, like a nice polo shirt and, and chino pants and, 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 and desert boots. Still have some of those. That's the sort of thing I'll wear now when I'm trying to look nice. Got this nice big diver's watch. It was only like a hundred bucks. It's this brand called Invicta. 
they make Swiss style watches for around a hundred dollars that if you bought like an actual they, they look like Rolexes or Omegas and a Rolexes and Omegas are like six grand minimum but these these are just like a hundred bucks so it's a pretty good deal and they're very sturdy uh, but yeah after a while doing doing more acting I never actually went to an acting college I moved to Melbourne after living in Brisbane for a while see I've always been fucking scared of doing the things I wanted. I was scared of just telling people that I wanted to be an actor back when I was living in Queensland, where I grew up. For some reason it seemed, well, it just seemed like something that would make me stand out more and not in a good way. So I moved to Melbourne where it's really artsy and I was like, wow, this is just my home. I still had problems motivating myself to actually become a get into the performing arts, but I knew that if I spent enough time here, I would eventually meet people who did what I want to do. And it was true. I was right. I did. Met, uh, I found it. Uh, I took like a short acting course at NIDA. Um, but what really, I, I got quite a bit of benefit from that. From that, The teacher towards the end of the course said, um, or confirmed what I was starting to learn that you do have to make a lot of your own work and not find work, which is the same for most jobs these days. Uh, and he said, YouTube is a good thing to just build yourself with. I didn't like that idea at the time, but uh, hearing it from him, because I thought, nah, YouTube, people making sketches on YouTube, I love them, but I don't want to do that because, well, I want to be a prestigious actor. Um, when he said that it's a good place to start, I, I kind of reconsidered it, and it's now what I'm trying to do. It's like three or four years later. Four, no, it's been like over, it's been like four and a half years since I took that course. Fuck. So there was that. And then I found out about this improv club, started doing improv classes, failed the first workshop, the basic one. I was convinced that uh, I was just naturally skilled enough for this stuff. No, I'm an actor, but um, improv is hard <laughs> and you have to be quick. You have to be fast. If you couldn't tell, I'm a slow person. I have big fucking thoughts, but they take a long time to translate into words and motions and actions. So I had to come to terms with that I wasn't going to be automatically great at something that I hadn't really done that much before, not since high school and theater sports. But even then I was pretty shit at that too. It's been a few years though, I'm pretty decent now, as long as I'm allowed to take my time. Auditions suck because it's, it's, it's a rush. You have to do it in a short amount of time. And I'm just not built for that. I'm sure I could train myself up to be fast, but I'd have to figure out how to do that. And I would have to spend so much time doing it. And I think I'd need people to do it. And I don't like the uh, saying that I need people to help me learn something. But sometimes you do. When it is interacting with other people better. I mean, there's only so much you can learn to play, I don't know, soccer by kicking a soccer ball around in a field on your own, you know? So coming to terms with that was a series of ego deaths on it on this and in, in, in of themselves another one was thinking that if people aren't super polite to me all the time that that meant they didn't like me no it just meant they've got their own shit going on so becoming more empathetic required some ego deaths to realize that i wasn't getting picked on or people in regular life aren't always what they're like in high school where they're your friends one day and they're your enemy the next. Sometimes, no, sometimes people just have a lot going on in their day or they're tired or something and they don't say hi to you when you're at 
the hobby club together um or they say or they just go without saying goodbye or anything people have their fucking lives to live they're not going out of their way to send you bloody passive signs of i suddenly don't like you so that was some insecurities i had and after enough time going outside going around going around to these improv clubs spending time with people hanging out with people after shows talking to them having some beers playing improv with them and like when you're playing improv you role play some challenging funny things sometimes i'd have trouble coming out of a scene uh, at least in the early days there were some scenes that were intense emotionally intense um and in the moment you're like Damn, am I actually upsetting this person? That was made me. A, that's what. That's what made me a shit improviser as well. Actually, was having a not real argument with someone, and suddenly my brain goes into, oh, I'm having an argument with someone. I better be a good diplomat. Um, and I wouldn't allow myself to just be a shit person or a cartoon character, which is what you generally want to have, like someone who is a projection of lots of stupid dumb behaviors people have done that you see on tv or that you even see in real life you make a character out of that i was so so unfamiliar with the idea or with the with the real deep understanding that it was play that i couldn't bear to have a fake argument in an improv scene and i would actually just be myself using logic and trying to negotiate with someone about a really dumb thing and that took me some time to get through of course it helped a lot to learn about the theory of like improv comedy theory things like pattern games and just um yeah when 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 they really explain the the process of this is an unusual thing and this is a normal thing and you're supposed to point out the unusual thing and if you are the unusual person who believes an unusual belief you're supposed to double down and be ridiculous in in saying that thing uh but i've talked enough about this in previous pods generally speaking what's helped me a lot is just coming onto the stage <laughs> arriving on the stage just going onto the stage with a character already set which means a particular voice accent posture all that stuff every anytime i remember to do that it usually goes pretty well Anytime I forget to do that, it usually goes pretty bad. So that's that. <laughs> it's always been my major thing to remember. But yeah, um, if you take up improv, yeah, you'll soon learn. And, and if you, you may well discover that you have ego problems. So keep that in mind. Um, but if you keep at it, you'll break down that ego and uh, or the cells of the ego. And uh, you become a better person, generally. It's also, as I mentioned in a previous thing it's it's a very scary thing but it's not a dangerous thing really it's just it just it, it just hits you emotionally but not physically well unless someone does some silly stunt on stage and there's a physical injury <laughs> that can happen but it's not skydiving dangerous you know or contact sport dangerous oh another good way of getting ego death is uh watching footage of yourself or listening to footage of yourself performing or speaking or something you go through phases of hating yourself and then but if you keep at it you'll find yourself noticing details that you can or things you can improve upon so you do improve uh, improve upon them and just thinking about it now is making me speak a little more articulately you so you do improve and with enough practice you get better and you let go of hating what you sounded like and liking more of what you sound like and if you 
watch and listen to enough of yourself, you actually start to love it. You start to love yourself. You start to become a fan of yourself as if you would any other charismatic person in media. And it's good. It's good to love yourself. Uh, speaking of, be good to yourself, be good to each other, yeah? This is a, it's time to wrap up, 58 minutes in, probably gonna cut some parts down, whatever. Check out the Lanky Nate, oh, check out Lanky Nate on YouTube, I've only got a couple videos up, but I'll, I'll put some stuff up eventually. Just give me those subs, please. Um, Lanky Nate Comedy on Facebook, Lanky Nate Comedy on Instagram. Please, please leave a review. Just say something that you want to see or hear. You want me to do a stunt even. I don't care. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. I just need any feedback so I can just navigate. Because um, in the meantime, all I'm doing is just throwing out random stuff. Uh, but that's that. So peace out.